0: Hello, and welcome to Banking Transform, the top podcast in retail banking. I'm your host, Jim Roos, owner and CEO of the Digital Bank Report and co-publisher of the Financial Brand. According to MIT, the biggest challenge to the innovative process include a lack of innovation culture, fear of change, the lack of ownership and vision, inadequate benchmarking, and even impatience. Unfortunately, there's no magic bullet or secret formula that can guarantee innovation success. But there are ways to make the odds of success greater. And it's not just new technology or a higher level investment. It can be a completely changed mindset. It could be the rebel in that back office that's never gotten a voice until now. I'm excited to have Steve Monahan on the Banking Transform podcast. Steve's experiences include leading the innovation team at several banking organizations, including DBS Bank. In this episode, Steve discusses why banking innovation lags many other industries and what can be done to change this paradigm. Originally a commercial pilot, Steve has held several senior corporate and banking roles in product, marketing, operations, innovation. And general management across Asia. He has worked for Dell, Compaq, Citigroup, OCBC, DBS Bank, among others. Throughout his career, Steve has specialized in introducing new business models, products, and processes in many industries. So, welcome to the show, Steve. You know, as I mentioned in our pre call, it's kind of interesting how you're aware of somebody for so many years and never really interacted with them. And and I guess podcasts and, and video uh, communication kind of gives us this opportunity. So before you start, could you share a little bit more about yourself and what you think is the most important trend around innovation in banking that we'll see in 2023 2024? I hate to go out any further than that right now.
1: Yeah, no, thanks, Jim, and uh, great to be here on this cold, dark winter's morning in uh, in Tokyo. Um, innovation uh, across any industry for me has has been driven by my lack of understanding. <laughs> so, I'm I'm not a smart guy. I couldn't understand many of the complexities when I got to banking, so I just looked for simplicity and logic. You know how how do you find your way? When I looked at the Visa model, for instance, and and developed Citibank's first uh, mobile payments patent, uh, you know barcode on the phone for mobile payments, and and what I called multi-entry bookkeeping, which everyone calls ledgers now. That was in 2001. It was driven by you know a very simple problem to solve in that the You know, the the logistical flow of money in the in the visa system didn't make sense in the modern world back then you know it was it was something that originated when it was offline and you know you had mail moving around and confirmations so for me i just had to look for a way that actually made sense you know to have single entry bookkeeping not double entry bookkeeping made no sense to me so you know how do you, how do you change that game how do you look for something different and you know so i've applied that same thinking through industry after industry and 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 it just seems to work for me um, so my background is really, uh, as you've highlighted, you know, I started in logistics and, and flying and, you know, and then that taught me about decision making. It also taught me spreadsheets because I had to automate so I could sleep because I run the company during the day and I'd fly at night. Uh, and then I really scaled the businesses because of that automation. So I saw firsthand what technology could do to give you a, an advantage and an edge. Then I started teaching financial institutions how to use this new spreadsheet technology. And then I uh, started developing pricing models and people, you know, uh, in in logic engines basically. And uh, software developers would wrap front ends around it. So I moved into the software industry and then into the hardware industry. and uh, developed pricing models that gave uh, you know Dell asymmetry and you know priced service. At desktop levels, which exploded demand on both sides of the equation—the desktop side and and the server side—you know. So I, I look for market asymmetries and and what's wrong in a market, and then how you can you know simplify flow, logic, technology, design—you know—all the things that go around it, and just kind of rinse and repeat. I'm I'm a, a bit of a one trick pony, if you'd like to think of it that way. Well, you know, it's interesting because you really get back to the very beginning
0: of digital in the banking world, and, and even having the innovation forethought. Because, you know, banking hasn't changed very much in the last 100 years. And um, it's, it's certainly changed more in the last three than it has in my previous career path. But it, it's interesting with your, your understanding of both banking technology, what have you seen as being the biggest challenge for organizations that are trying to play catch up and what is needed to move forward?
1: Yeah, sure. Look, um, you know, I, I think the the simplest thing is getting started. You know, a lot of companies, you know, want the answers to everything. Here in Japan, you know, they want to boil the universe before they take the first step. You know, where really it's the first step that's really important, you know, because you know, we all know Agile. And for me, Agile is just a reflection of, of technology economics. So, which is strange because everyone, you know, if you go to a bank and you'll have you know, on boards and things, and I sit on the board of a bank now. But you have procrastination going, oh, it's a culture. And it's not. It's it's just purely a reflection of, of technology, economics, and depreciation curves, and, and all those sorts of things. But what's really important is taking that first step and getting that learning. The most powerful learning uh, in the world is, is experiential learning. So unless you're actually moving and doing and engaging, people aren't understanding. So and what I've what I've found is giving people that experience gives them platform, you know, so the moment they get moving, they feel confident they're able to do things like riding a bike. Right. You know, the first time as a kid, you're you're all over the shop and, and, and scared of, of doing it. Uh, but the moment you do it, of course, and the moment you learn it, you never forget it. So, you know, getting people engaged, getting them moving, getting that that first momentum going uh, is the most critical thing for me.
0: Well, it's interesting when you talk about learning, you know, like riding a bicycle, you know, initially it's the fear of failure or the risk involved. And then the comfort level that once you know it, you never forget it. But is that somewhat a challenge in innovation whereby if you're successful at something, trying something new becomes that that next challenge that situation i mean is banking right now almost encumbered by their ongoing success their ongoing profits the revenues and the risk is still there to try to ride the next bike
1: yeah, that that is the problem because the success of the past doesn't reflect your success in the future. I mean, in in a corporate context, we're watching that happen with Toyota and electric today. You know, their heart just isn't in the electric vehicle. They think they have a superior technology, in the same way Sony did with Betamax, in the same way Intel does with TSMC. Right. You know, this this is a rinse and repeat problem. Um, but you know, I think. What, misses, what we're still missing for me in finance, and I think it's the biggest opportunity in the planet right now, is that we're focused very much on facilitation, but we haven't looked at optimization. We haven't made our expertise work for us yet in banking. And I think that that's a really interesting opportunity. And, uh, and the numbers are, are frightening.
0: What do you mean by that, making, making our experience work for us? What do you Break that apart a little bit for me.
1: OK, so compound interest drives our world. But we never really think of it that way. So, you know, we've we've invested a huge amount in real time payment systems all over the world. Right well, now, this this is not a problem. We can do that. But if you look at business cycles, they're still monthly, you know, in the in the US, even where even when you're paid biweekly, you still do monthly mortgages. Why? Why would you do that? It, it, it's a fundamental disconnect. The business cycles haven't changed. You pay your rent monthly. You, you know, all of this thing, and it goes back to ancient Babylonia. You know, five thousand five hundred years of habit, right? Lunar settlement cycles, right. and, and that's pretty much what drives modern payment terms. SMEs give credit to banks. If I give a do a contract with a bank, I invoice them, and they hang on to it for 90, 120 days, or whatever. Um, you know why, why am I giving credit to a bank? The fundamental math disconnect on that is is massive. And it's not like that cost doesn't travel. It just travels in price where it's not measured or managed. So the bank ends up paying this huge premium for capital when their job is, is should really to be to optimize returns on capital, <laughs> you know? So you see these fundamental disconnects.
0: Well, you, you talk about cycles. I mean, is that somewhat one of the challenges in innovation whereby, You know, it's interesting. I mentioned to you before our our podcast started that I visited WeBank, and WeBank's innovation cycle right now, they've got it down to less than 14 days. In other words, from, from ideation to implementation takes 14 days. I am totally amazed by the banking industry, I'm going to talk about the states, but also in the UK and elsewhere, where innovation becomes an annual process. We look at our annual plans and we say, we're going to do this by the end of the year. We may do it or may not do it, but it's in an annual sequence. You also see things like in the last 24 hours, the biggest banks in the United States just announced that they're working on a wallet process through their Zelle relationship and that they're going to be introducing it most likely in the second quarter of this year. I am flabbergasted by two things. Number one, they announce something that hasn't been developed yet and even put a time period on it. And number two, the time period you put on it is, for me, so extended, end of 2023, that says by the time you get it implemented, some of the ideas that you used as the foundation for your idea are already going to be outdated or at least not maximized or optimized, to your point. Is this also a challenge whereby – The banking industry, legacy banking industry, still looks at innovation as a big bang, cyclical thing, as opposed to an iterative item.
1: Look, uh, 100 percent. But I I go a little deeper than that and say why. And that is basically we all understand cycle time is really important. You know, that's how we built the, the business in Dell. Right. We really focused on cycle time because and what drives that? Well, you know, if you change the denominator and your profits are uh, uh, driving in a constant way over the top, your return on capital improves and the And the problem with all of these planning cycles is that you know while we talk about being agile, the reality is we we judge projects and we finance projects based on a waterfall process, MPV IRR, rather than a real options approach. So we don't understand, you know we we, we kind of prescribe, that, oh, we want to be agile and we want to do this and we want to be quick and we intuitively understand cycle time. But yet our planning processes and our finances are driven on a waterfall basis because we think that, oh, no, no, this is just what we do over there. It doesn't apply to really how we run the bank. And, uh, and that's got to change because you're right. You've got to take that first step. You've got to get that learning. You've got to get that cycle time. You've got to be fast. You know, the reason that uh, that agile is, is 90 day, you know, classifies anything over 90 days as waste is because depreciation cycles. You know, the half life of technology is is 18 months, which is why your new phone is worth half what it is 18 months later. So, you know, unless you're actually putting those ideas and taking that technology and those assumptions to market quickly, they're invalidated, which is why it's called waste in agile. But we don't reflect this, you know, in the financial world in, in terms of the way that we plan, the way that we budget, the way, you know, all these things, you know, the reality is everything has to change.
0: Yeah, it's you know great point that that the front and the back end work at different sequences. And, and so what we do is we, we fall back to the one that has the least risk, which is, again, the cycles. And, you know, the importance of innovation is obviously very well documented. But is there an, a concept, a component of innovation that is more misunderstood than any others? What, what do organizations get wrong as they try to embrace, let's say, an innovation culture?
1: I think they don't understand or perhaps they do the complexity of people. And you know, if you're if you're going to act quickly, it can't be done through a, a central hierarchy of command and control. I mean, you have to really empower the lowest levels to be able to make decisions and respond very quickly. And so, you know, that empowerment is very different in, you know, in old banking cultures, you know, which are really, you know, from the top down. You know, we we went through some of this battle at at one of the banks that I work for, where, you know, there was originally this top-down mandate. You've got to be innovative. You've got to do this. And it went absolutely nowhere because, you know, in reality, you have to have that top-down leadership, but you've got to have that bottom-up, you know, uh, view from the market. You've got to be responsive to the market. And, you know, someone that's sitting in head office is not going to understand a a customer in Itaewon or in uh, Akasaka or, you know, in in the local markets in Asia. It just doesn't work, you know? So you've got to have that core context of, uh, you know, well, actually it is, it's the context of the customer. And you've got to be responsive to those changes.
0: You know, it's interesting. It always gets back to leadership. We, we talk about in banking, there are still so few organizations that if I asked you, you know, what are the most innovative financial institutions in the world, you could kind of come up with a handful, but not much beyond that. You may be stretching it after that. Even if you de- redefine what innovation or an innovative organization is, but, you know, you think about a DBS, you, you mentioned before we sat down here that, that in the past, It took a while to get DPS going, understanding and embracing innovation. In fact, it took making money. Um, What is interesting is, you know, they are a leadership that uh, good or bad, right or wrong, profits or nonprofits, you end up thinking of them when you think about an innovative culture. You you have other organizations globally that you see that as well. But does it really just get down to leadership? I mean, be it in the banking world or in in the tech world, where if leadership gets complacent, if they lose their mojo, if they are no longer trying to beat themselves, does that pretty much – doesn't matter how much structure you have in process for innovation, does that pretty much kill –
1: Kill the process well leadership is the starting point i um, mean you've got to have a leader that that's willing to take some risk and make some change uh, without question right and i think in banking we often take the view that things have to be riskless but we've, we've kind of forgotten that we're in the business of risk i mean that's what banks do but it's more than just leadership Le- leadership has to exist to to give the permission to go um but what's really important is is to be able to take action and to make that action move, so you know, getting people moving is actually the hardest piece. Because you know, in in case in point, right, um, DBS in back when I joined was not even the most innovative bank in Singapore. I think it ranked clearly number three, <laughs> and you know, yeah. so you know, and leadership hadn't changed, right? It had changed relative recent history, but but you know, it was it was fairly stable at that point. You know, and you need a, a catalyst in, in, to to break that mold. You know, in the same way that you saw it in China, right? Jack Ma, you know, went and basically said, you know, I'm breaking the rules, arrest me. But if you don't do this, then the you know, there is no ecom. So you know, kind of the same thing. You you needed a catalyst to get things moving to you know experiment. Uh, push boundaries, not necessarily break rules in banking. Uh, you know, you, you have good frameworks in banking, but you definitely need to push the boundaries and, you know, getting that moving, um, you know, even perhaps against, uh, Against permission, <laughs> but where it's you know, yes yeah. within the regulatory boundaries and limitations, um, that enables you. Once you get moving, you you start building some degree of momentum. The hardest step is always the first. You know, it's basic laws of physics. I'm a huge fan of physics because, you know, the three laws are Newton's three laws for me, are the laws of innovation. You know, for um, an object's going to stay in a steady state of motion unless you apply force to move it, and you know, for every action equal opposite reaction, which means that all change is going to be resisted. Get used to it. And then the third's the most instructive force equals mass times acceleration, right? Force. What's your force in banking? It's capital and people. That's all you have. You know, mass is the size and complexity of your network, your tech, you know, your customers, you know, all that sort of thing. Metcalf's law, the, the network. And then, you know, A is in banking terms, acceleration is alpha, right? Alpha is not negotiable. That's that's what you're driving for which means that you're left with capital and people or mass. So and clearly, you know, what most tech companies do, like uh, Google and Alphabet, and you're even seeing it with GPT three, You know, small organization off to the side and let them go and push boundaries because mass is low, which means capital and people are relatively low versus the big institution. So if you can get that momentum there and you get the alpha and growth, then over time, you bring that back in to change the company. and that's kind of the model that, that we did you know from a, a dbs standpoint whether we realized it or not we we created this small group of rebels off to the side that were able to get a few things moving and engage the organization and then what leadership was was fantastic about was really you know putting the metrics behind it and, and ensuring that the business didn't reject um, those opportunities back then and, and the rest kind of is history
0: Innovation leaders then could be middle middle level managers or maybe not even managers at all. It's who embraces the challenge and has fun being the rebel. I mean, I you, we talked about some of our mutual friends at DBS and and they they would certainly be considered rebels. 100 percent. And if you if you feel comfortable in the middle, pushing at the edges, but but doing things that you, you've mentioned it twice now. Um, and you have to apologize for later, it's not a bad way to lead. Um, you just hope that sooner or later, senior management gets on board or else you'll be leaving. Uh, you, you won't be staying at the organization. Um, you know, when you look at innovation and in banking, how much of a hindrance or a potential force for the future is the back office, the way we, we run our back offices?
1: Well, in many ways, that it's the opportunity. I think, you know, if I go back to my time at City as an example, you know, I took advantage of, of, of the back office, you know, I, I invited audit, <laughs> which was which was bizarre. But I, I invited them when I during ideation to make sure that I set up things the, the right way the first time, right? So I used that experience. I wanted to understand, because I'd come in from tech, i had no understanding of, of banking in reality. You know, so it was like, you know, how do I ensure that I construct this the right way to pull the right drivers to yield the right result? You know, so for me, the, the back office is actually, you know, and you'll find that it's a huge opportunity because no one usually speaks to them. Right. So you can get a level of yeah. engagement there that you mightn't get from the front line. Um, so I, I use it. I take the, the view. It's a resource and an opportunity. And, you know, and they often have some really great insights around how you can actually become more efficient, because I think what's what's really interesting in banks. It is, also
0: keeps it from getting watered down.
1: Yeah, 100 percent. You know, innovation doesn't occur within one person or one group or all that sort of thing. You've really got to capture the talent and the expertise of the organization. And that expertise is there. If you look at the innovation team in DBS, that was no one that you would point out at the time and go, oh, that person was really innovative. You know, what, what we were good at was capturing the expertise of the organization and working with them so they could give them a platform for contribution. Everyone knows how they could improve their job. I mean, we don't hire not smart people in banking, right? We hire the best. Right. And, you know, when you give that the, the best platform, then you're able to achieve some pretty remarkable results.
0: You know, it is interesting because, you know, we talk about the rebels. We talk about the people that might march a beat of a different drummer. But at the end of the day, it, it still has to make money. It still is about talent. And it's, and it's talent all the way through the organization. You know, when we look right now at, at the type of talent that's needed, it's vastly different in many ways, or certainly an expansion that's vastly different than what we've seen in the past. How do you envision the war for talent actually playing out especially in banking, but in any organization. And um, is there a need for new talent and experience going to drive more partnerships between traditional banks and fintech organizations when they can't find the talent that they really need internally?
1: Yeah, that, that's an interesting one. I, I think you know the, there are many stratas within that. So you know, clearly new talent sets such as engineering. I mean, engineering was pretty much new, new to banking in many organizations, right? And and that you know is you you have to acquire from outside. Um, but equally, you know, uh, in the move to data science. You know, I, I was lucky to have Jeremy Howard, who was a co-founder of Kaggle um, and the world's number one data scientist, on an advisory board, and and we went through some of this thinking, and he said, "You're better off." training your engineers to be data scientists rather than hiring data scientists back then um, and for the reason that they all have the ability to to execute you know and and there are plenty of, of uh, online courses and he runs one called fast.ai um, which enable people to pick up those skills quite quickly you know so in the banks uh, where I've been on the board or, or executive committees and things um, you know I always look at the training option how do you take the talent within and train them because you're, you're giving them this huge opportunity. You're, you know, you're capturing that excitement and that passion, you know, and I've seen, you know, engineers like, Transform their roles and 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 go on to some pretty big things in the data science world, uh, from a banking perspective. That you know, when they felt that they were stuck in this small role somewhere else. So you know, again, investing in people and platform, et cetera, I think is is really the the best way to get a motivated uh, workforce that actually contributes and drives results because you're tapping their natural enthusiasm for change. You know. I think it's, it's a misnomer that people don't want to change. Um, we thrive on change. We grow with it. You know, learning gives us a buzz when we understand something new and can take ourselves to a new level. I mean, that's what we've got to tap inside organizations. So there is a role for external talent, but equally the talent inside is often undiscovered. And I'll, I'll share one, one quick story from a different industry. You know, if you look at, at the profit driver of Sony today, it's PlayStation. PlayStation was a rebel program run by some wild guy in a back, <laughs> a back room who was just sheltered by his manager. So no one knew what he was doing. I mean, it was as simple as that. If, if it was surfaced, if if he didn't have a manager that hit him, uh, PlayStation wouldn't have happened. It would have been resisted internally, of course. You know, so that's that's the whole idea of the rebel.
0: Yeah, you look at Sony, and and you know, we go, we both go back a ways, but PlayStation for years after introduction was simply a side, a side notation. Um, there were much bigger platforms um, from broadcast to, to technology, sure. the, the way people were listening to music, everything else. And the PlayStation became more important as a lot of the Sony technology was, became outdated through through what you can do on the computer and everything else. And it's, it's very interesting. I, I've never heard that story, but it's an interesting story because when you really look at PlayStation, you realize that, you know that and the Betamax from the same field, but Betamax was a, a very well-supported platform and, until it wasn't. Um, and it and it's very 100%. interesting to look at how these things can happen. And when when you look at, I, I said it earlier that when you look at innovative banks around the world, there's very few of them that you'd really say. You know, they may not get it all right, but as far as innovation, they're doing pretty well in that space. Why is it so hard? for other organizations to try to replicate the culture, the people, the process, whatever else. It's not, it's not totally rocket science, but why do we find so few organizations that lag and, and actually rate themselves as laggards?
1: Uh, it's fear of failure. I mean, you know, people use fear. You either run away from a fire or you run towards it to help put it out. Right. So, you know, you've got to find the people that are willing to run in the right direction. Uh, because fear is, it can be overwhelming. You know, if you if you look at most entrepreneurs, I mean, it's it's a, it's an absolute part. I mean, every I've invested in like I think uh, sixteen companies. I'm on a global fund and you know investment committee, et cetera. And you know, failure is part of the journey. But in failure, in you know, many organizations, is terminal um where it's the most powerful form of learning you you learn to adapt you're forced to adapt you're forced to survive and and it's that survival instinct that has to kick in i mean i'm watching it happen here in japan at a a country level you know this resistance to change this lack of embracing digital you know toyota doesn't believe in the electric car their hearts just not in it uh, and you're just watching it die. I mean, you know, I've seen this story before: Compaq and distribution versus Dell. <laughs> you know, it, it's a story that just repeats and repeats and repeats because you, you know, the successful companies, you know, fail to put the most valuable assets to work in the right direction.
0: You know, that's interesting. because I, I, I read some of your re- recent writings and your your frustration with Japan, which, if you ask people in the world, you know, today they would not see Japan as lagging, but they'd certainly see China in front. And if they started peeling back the layers on some of the other Asian countries, they'd see a lot of um, countries ahead of Japan. But it's interesting because that was Japan's calling card was their innovative culture, their 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 transformation Absolutely. of businesses. But it's amazing how you can, you know, again, you can lose that mojo, even when you had it, when it was your your brand.
1: Yeah, look, you're right, Jim. I think if you have a look at it, it, would you use a 30 year old core banking system, right? Would you would you place your bets on it for the future? And, you know, I I know your answer and you know my answer. (laughs) But in reality, you know, if you look back at the context of what made Japan successful, you know, the average age of the country back then in the in the 50s was 22. The average age today is 48. And so you wonder if that conservatism is actually what's holding it back because, you know, in today, you know, it's a very hierarchical run country, right? It's permission based. It's very risk adverse. You're not giving the youth a platform. The talent's still here. You're just not giving them the platform for change, you know? So, you know, that that for me is interesting. You know, success can be a problem. You know,
0: you you talk about the 48-year-olds, they all hit home runs. Consistently in their twenties. You look at the age of people in China in those in those R and D labs, those huge facilities at Huawei or at at WeBank or at Alibaba, and you, you look and you go, these are filled with twenty year olds that have no fear because they don't know any better. But you 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 exactly. have a situation. Uh, you know you know I, I kid about in, in almost every podcast now the fact that a legacy bank in the United States certainly in the mid-range asset size, are run by a a group of white men that played golf together 30 years ago and have not had a bad year overall since. Well, that can make it so your risk of failure is pretty high because you're going, you know, I'm on the tail end. I don't really want to lose now. I got a pretty good legacy going. I have a bunch of people around me that continually we congratulate each other every year at annual report time. And and they and they laugh when they see that VC capital is not coming into the fintech area as, as much as it was, and where fintechs are struggling, they they say, "See, it was all just a fad." When it's not, the world's changing too fast. And you know, again, you know, very much in your your Japanese uh, analogy, you don't know you've lost until you've lost. You don't know you're falling behind until it's too late, and it happens. You know, we've seen it in many technologies. It can happen overnight.
1: Yeah, and you know what's what's really sad about it is is I when I see such a big capital advantage, you know, which it goes to your analogy as well you're very comfortable with the dividends and you want to maintain those dividends you want to grow those dividends and you're not prepared to take from the dividend pool to go and invest to do the thing that's going to keep you going into the future because you're comfortable now you know why why change things seem to be yeah. going well and, you know and bringing it back to to finance optimization you know it's really looking at how do you get the best of that return on capital uh and you know and it's obviously not by paying it out you know, the tech industry for many years never used to give dividends at all because they were just in continuously investing in their growth and yeah. you know to to lose that connection to the market I think is 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 the downfall of many big companies they fail to realize that that their financial position is actually one of the biggest resources and advantages they have and yet they fail to deploy it and use it and, and yeah. I find that an interesting dichotomy
0: You you hear a level of frustration between both of us and and because we're dying for more to happen. So, So let's take a short break here and recognize the sponsors of this podcast. We'd like to thank our sponsor, Microsoft. See how Microsoft can help unlock new opportunities at speed and scale through innovative business processes, delivering differentiated customer experiences across channels, innovating new products and services, and redefining new ways of thinking. Find out more at microsoft.com backslash financial services. So welcome back. I'm joined today by Steve Monahan, longtime innovation guru in the banking industry and beyond. We have been discussing innovation in financial services and what the industry must do to better support the innovation process. So so Steve, what do you see as the, now this is a long one, So what do you see as the impact of embedded finance, cryptocurrency and the metaverse as we
1: look forward? I think that each of them have a role Embedded finance, I think, is is obvious, right? It's you're moving banking from you know relationship bilateral relationships into network relationships, and that makes sense. You know, this is what we've done in the technology industry. Uh, it has to happen in banking. Um, and the question is, how do you do it in a smart way, and how do you make it yield? Uh, crypto, uh, absolutely. Tokenization. I'm a huge, huge fan of tokenization of physical assets, and you know, being able to you know now create liquidity around those assets. I think that that is 100 percent the future. Individual cryptocurrencies where they have purpose, <laughs> I, I I think is is in, is very interesting, of course, and I think has a has a huge role in in finance. Um, I think one of the structural problems with crypto is it's you know we broke the mold of of holding you know entrepreneurs accountable for generating value first for their customers then for their shareholders and and then finally for themselves. We we enabled them to suddenly monetize and become liquid off their own coins immediately before the others had realized value, which I think just drives yeah. a very dangerous uh, behavior into the market. But uh, and then the metaverse, the metaverse. Uh, you know, absolutely, digital twin—the ability to create a frictionless society to the side that mirrors your your reality over here—I I think there is a, f- a future in that. NFTs, all, all that sort of thing, can can be can be valuable in in that context. Um, uh, but I think one of the challenges is we often hype the technology rather than focusing on the business model. And you know what's lacking in the metaverse today is the business model. You know what's lacking in crypto is you know is business model and fundamentals. <laughs> you know so sure. there are still problems yeah. to solve. You know tech it, tech isn't a panacea. You know tech is a tool set. So we've got to make sure those tool sets are, are facing in the right direction.
0: Well, it's interesting. Is embedded finance probably is the closest to the business model being there because it's, it's kind of like a a spur off of the, the mothership. The other two are, are somewhat nebulous and metaverse, you know, it's, it's, we, you talk to 10 people, you're going to get 10 completely different definitions as to what metaverse is. So it, it depends on what you throw into that. But I think it's interesting because it's, it's an open concept, but I think getting back to something you said earlier and I've, I've known a couple of really good innovative companies in my time, not many of them, but I've known some of them. And all of them involved the naysayers as part of the process. So they involved in the old days legal. They involved the, the technology, the, non, the back office people. But more importantly now, they've involved the, the people who are all about the, the, um, the actual government regulation. And and being able to look at this and say, okay, bring these people to the table to have them have a voice beforehand rather than having watered down um, innovation. But more importantly, to help define what regulators probably aren't going to define as quickly. You know, one thing I'm seeing too often is that regulators tend to be the oldest bankers in the industry. Therefore, they're way behind the curve as to where the consumer usually wants things to go. And if you don't have your compliance people and if you don't have your your legal people and if you don't have your government regulation people into the discussion, you you, there there falls apart your business model to a degree or at least waters down your innovation in the future. Um, So, Steve, you know, innovation is a top priority for virtually any organization we can take apart what that means because so is customer experience, but we don't see the investment and the commitment really getting down to the brass tacks as to what the consumer wants. But a lot of organizations still consider themselves laggards in the innovation area. To be prepared or to get started, which is what where you started the whole conversation, you got to get started. Where do organizations need to start first? If you came in to... Pick any organization. I know you won't pick one that's probably not already have a little bit of a head start because you don't want to hit your head against the wall. But let's say you did. What would be the first thing you'd have an organization do?
1: Understand the customer and customer value and how that's shifting. So, you know, I I, I that was pretty much how I entered DBS. There was, you know, it was a digital desert. You know, DBS stood for damn bloody slow. So, and, you know, there, there was no no real innovation culture there whatsoever. So, you know, going into an organization, which is fundamentally, you know, uh, dead, I I think you've you've got to look at first where that, that fiscal opportunity is. You know, there are many places that I think look at innovation and go, well, let's build some nice new space first, or let's do this and, you know, and make it appear that it's innovative for me i think that the key is to look at where the value is and understand where the asymmetry is that you can you know that you want to create in the market and then look at how you tap that value and then start you know absolutely going out getting the back office getting you know the regulator i used to call the mas the ministry of no now look at them they're they're driving you know mas is the regulator in singapore you know you could argue that they're in front of innovation now You know, so, you know, and but that was a function of shared learning. And I think that the most important thing in if you want to get things moving is you've got to create this learning culture. You know, it tech's moving so fast. I mean, two years ago, we we're using Google. Now we're using ChatGPT. I've forgotten how to write queries in Google. <laughs> so, <laughs> but, you know, you've yeah. got to take people along on that learning journey. And that is regulators. You know, it should be collaborative. Right. We've got to we've got to learn together. You know, you've got to take the people, the back office, you've got to learn together. You know, it's creating this learning culture for me is the number one thing you've got to do to get things moving inside an organization.
0: You know, that that scares me too, because I think about the desire to learn. You know, uh, my team knows that I got going in writing content, pushing content, sharing ideas because of my desire to learn. So the only way I can share things was to learn things every week or else I'd be sharing things and I'd run out of things to share. So that's why I did the podcast. That's why I do the writing. That's why I do the webinars. That's why I do speaking on the road is because each one of them is a learning opportunity, not a selling opportunity or a talking opportunity, despite the amount I talk. But what's interesting is I'm wondering, is there, do we lose this? I mean, we find it when we want to find it. We know people that do this, but sometimes resting on your laurels is less scary. And, and I get concerned because, you know, you mentioned ChatGBT. And I find it interesting that people blow it up and say it doesn't work. And I try to explain to them, it's the structure of the questions. It's the structure of what you do on the front end that's going to define how good the back end is. And that's going to be, I think it's going to become more and more of an issue, not just in in AI, but in everything, that if we don't have people that learn how to ask great questions in a format that gets you where you want to go, you'll never get there. Or you, you certainly aren't going to know if you do get there.
1: Oh, Jim you're you're so on point there uh, it is it's the quality of the questions and this is this is you know how you get people engaged I, I believe you know fundamentally people want change they strive for change you know and and asking the right questions you know if you look at a, a bank and and you look at regulatory and you know someone usually owns the regulatory relationship oh you can't go and and talk to the regulator because you know we we're you know we're we comply with it. That that's our shop, but if you get them asking the right questions, you know, you often find that that you overregulate yourself to be on the conservative side of the regulator, rather than just going and talking with the regulator <laughs> and arriving together right. at a new at a new answer, right? So you know, yeah. not only the quality of the questions, but to address those questions. To the right people, you know, and we're in a world where I think we've we we now know we can go direct with just about anything, right? So so working out where to ask the questions and then doing it in a very direct manner, so you're cutting out all these layers of judgment that sit in the middle to get to the source. I mean, this is you know this is what I learned in Dell. You know, <laughs> this is how you go direct, yeah. and and that culture I, I think uh, it becomes very important. So you want to engage the expertise and capture that expertise at, at the at the source, and I think. Uh, that really helps invigorate the innovation process, and cuts through a lot of the you know bureaucratic mess that that lies in in barrier to it.
0: You know, and it, and it also gets back down to your rebel idea, the fact that asking the right questions, but sometimes continually asking them, because the answers are based on facts of the past. Whereby right. you know, right. just because you get an answer, doesn't mean you have to accept the answer you receive, and and that 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 again takes takes confidence in yourself because as people or as organizations, you have to have confidence. I remember a very large U.S. financial institution, I don't think many people would put in the top five of being the most innovative, said that their idea of innovation was to do what they knew was right and beg for forgiveness if they went beyond what the regulators thought they thought and try to convince them that no. They're still within the confines of what was meant by the the rationale of the regulation because regulators right now are not writing things for each specific thing. And in fact, we're hiding behind that in many cases in industry. So, Steve, you know, you have an eye on the world, not just uh, the Asian market. But if you look at, let's say, three financial institutions that may not be in everybody's you know spotlight as far as being truly innovative that are that are of scale that are financially bigger organizations what three would you put on you on your
1: your top five list oh we bank absolutely <laughs> um cacao in in korea i mean phenomenal um if i look at a more staid old financial institution um you know, I, I do rank DBS I, I think they're, they're doing a great job and continue to, to push boundaries. So they would be the the three that I admire and, and learn from.
0: you know and it's interesting each one of the three I probably should say two of the three because WeBank Bank actually has so much competition in their backyard they're continually pushed. But if you look at DBS, you know yes, Asia is a very very uh, a very innovative marketplace but the overall is to keep your to keep your game going, is a credit to them. Um, I, I look at location. I look at uh, um, some other financial institutions, some in Indian ones uh, as well, that that I think do a really good job at a time when they may they could have easily taken a a uh, more laissez-faire attitude. If you look beyond financial services, because you again get out of financial services quite a bit, what do you see as being uh, some of the more innovative companies that are not banking?
1: Oh, uh, SpaceX! I love uh, that that story of SpaceX. You know, it's a classic 10x story. You know, it's rethinking the game from the from the ground up. It's you know the story about the flight computer. You know, hundred thousand dollars a NASA. It's just a PC, isn't it? <laughs> it's a couple of grand. Oh yeah. You know, to to rechallenge. You know, all of all of those fundamentals and you know reusability. You know, I mean, if you think about it, you know, he created microservices for space travel. <laughs> you know, reusable rockets, oh, yeah. reusable components. You know, all all these sorts of things. And I think you know that points to the the fundamental rules are the same. No matter what the deployment of technology, and what the industry, or, or or what the assets, right? All of these things are about the same thing. How do you reuse assets? How do you generate multiple times off them? You know, it's having that framework of thinking and pulling together that that network around it. That's uh, that's really interesting. So, you know, SpaceX, I I, I love and admire. I, I think that's uh, that's probably the best example. But you you know, equally, you you see in in many. Many other industries, some some fascinating things that are happening. You know, I, I love what they've done with Chat GPT, rethinking rethinking oh, yeah. the search engine when you've got Google that's like you know, a high ninety percent dominant. <laughs> you know,
0: and and wanting to put your your neck out there and saying, oh, by the way, what you've seen so far, it's going to not look the same a year from now. Which you all of a sudden say the speed of innovation is is as exciting as the innovation itself. And you know, you you and I both lived in the time when we watched every space takeoff and they happened really infrequently and it is so much different than it is today and to think it be commercialized successfully commercialized is amazing as you mentioned you know for me to th- to think of a, a rocket engine relanding itself on a space that's no bigger than my hotel room or, um, you know, the, the technology that's gone into this and in that the pilots no longer have to pilot the spacecraft. Heck, they don't pilot airplanes today. But, you know, the technology has happened so fast that it's it's really interesting to fathom. And, and honestly, you know, we, we, we have taken completely for granted what's in our po- all of our pockets. The, the mobile phone is just insane what we rely on it for today. You know, it when you travel or anything else you start thinking how could i ever get from point a to point b without a mobile device today couldn't not successfully
1: well i think this goes back to your earlier point jim you know around asking the right questions because you know if the constraints and the variables have changed during you know time which they do right if you look at chat gpt yeah once they open the next stage GPT-4 and i'm, I'm sure it's a multiple of, yeah. of of what it is today you know your constraints are going to be very different your questions are going to be very different um you know and and to even ask old questions you'll get a different answer because you know the the data sets the knowledge you know all of that things expanded so much and i think that that's really that you should never assume that what was a constraint in the past is a constraint in the future um, and oh, we yeah. should always challenge exactly. to look for where we can make those connections. You know, so you know for me, the the biggest value in banking that's that's untapped today is the value between the silos. I think we're starting to nail the silos themselves but we're not you know nailing what lies between the silos you know the b2b to, B to c connection i mean this is still a, a huge source of, of friction and opportunity we haven't challenged the fundamentals of of you know from a finance perspective we are focused on facilitation not optimization you know how do we relook you know yeah. i'm working uh, on a, on a project at the moment where if you look at uh, the average discount rate uh, for supply chain finance is 600 basis points, so how can you generate capital? You know, in Japan, you know, uh, Toyota's funding rate, as an example, is one basis point. So one basis point, 600. One basis point, 600. <laughs> That's a huge, yeah. huge regular arbitrage. You know, how how do you take advantage? of the actual math. You know, and yet you come up against resistance like that's not the way we do things <laughs> or or you can't do that and it's like yeah. hmm, of course you can.
0: You know, and the underlying the underlying thought also I, I one thing that has not been talked about that much but something that's really struck me was how OpenAI has built both DALI and and ChatGPT and they made it commercially viable before it's even introduced. So in other words it doesn't take a rocket scientist to look at those two technologies and say, oh, this is totally consumer friendly and oh, it can make money and it will be in demand. And it is already being, you know, Microsoft's investment. You realize well, they're doing quite well, but I thought it was interesting that they're doing it to enhance the customer experience, whoever the customer is, both on the visual and on the, the written form and to get better answers. Now, for me, I, I've used ChatGPT quite a bit recently in the development of my articles, not, not the writing of the articles, but in the formatting, the thought process, because every question came back with different answers. And I said, oh, I, I hadn't thought about that. It's good to test your logic. So, OK, finally, Steve, to end the, the conversation, what do you see as the biggest opportunity
1: in banking today? Moving to optimization so really really rethinking how money works and optimizing value for customers you know and a simple example right you know most bankers will pay their mortgage monthly you know what if you could pay it daily you know how does that change the financial right. returns how does that accelerate ownership how does you know what what's the new model there you know, how would you get it funded, you know, putting together those pieces across multiple silos, you know, how, how do you turn employee, you know, payroll from an expense to an asset, you know, that, how, how do you re-challenge some of the fundamentals? How do you look back into legislation and use technology tools to, to really rethink how value works in society, you know, at, at the end of the day, you know. Banks need to reinvent themselves to think about how they move because a lot of the front end, the transactional thing, is commoditizing, right? All tech commodit- uh, commoditizes. You know, this is the challenge in in all technology industries: is is tech itself isn't the differentiator. It's how do you how do you string together the value, and um, and that I don't think banks have begun to scratch the surface of just yet.
0: You know, optimization in everything we do. I, I keep on looking under neighborhood and saying. You know, uh, I think we have 15 houses on the street. We got probably 42 cars on the street. We aren't all driving all 42 cars um, on an ongoing basis. How much how much is wasted? How much friction is there? when we aren't just scheduling three cars for everybody to go to the place we want to go when we want to go there and using them optimally. You know, Uber was just the start of that. Um, Fractional timeshares of of flights, fractional timeshares of residences as in Airbnb and everything else, you know, it's every element of that. And then what role can banking play in that? Because at the end of the day, almost everything gets financed. You know, there's a way to make it so that it becomes a greater value for the user as well as the, the organizations that are in between the processes. So,
1: And I think what's missing in banking to make that happen is the growth mindset. In the technology industry, we will cut the pricing of something to drive scale and to really think about how we grow yep. and make it up in share. The reason we don't move in banking is we're, we're unwilling to rethink the model, the pricing and the scale. And so having that growth mindset and really thinking about scale and making technology work at scale Time to value, time to money, time to scale. That's exactly how you drive every digital project, regardless of industry. Uh, but we don't do it really effectively in finance. So we've got to make finance work. We've got to make finance scalable. And
0: uh, yeah, you I, know I'm that's a that's a great way to end it because you really you're really talking about the ability to rethink the business models from a revenue perspective. And, you know, we've seen some of it in open banking. We're we're going to see more of it because, you know, traditional ways of funding things between interchange and other bizarre ways we spread, which is gone now because of the efficiency in the marketplace. We have to rethink the way banking makes money. And there's so many ways, because again, you know, getting to your very strong point, there's so much inefficiency in the marketplace today that that banking's, in the center of but sometimes they just have lived by that for so long it's hard to think that banking may be completely funded by outside the bank as opposed to inside the bank right steve thank you very much for being on the show i really appreciate you getting up early in japan to sit down with us and i hope you have a great day and uh i appreciate your discussion
1: yeah appreciate the opportunity jim great to speak
0: Thanks for listening to Banking Transform, winner of three international awards for podcast excellence. If you enjoy what we're doing, please take some time to show some love in the form of a formal review. It does help us to continue having great guests like today. Finally, be sure to catch my recent articles on the financial brand and the research we're doing for the Digital Banking Report. This has been a production of Evergreen Podcast. A special thank you to our senior producer, Leah Longbreak, audio engineer, Sean Ruhl Hoffman, and video producer, Will Pritz. I'm your host, Jim Roos. Until next time, remember the words of Gary Vaynerchuk who says, don't fear innovation, figure out a way to take advantage of it.
1: You've got questions, we've got answers. Business leadership, ownership, and sales can be challenging. Tune into the Accelerate Your Business Growth podcast